One of the things that became very, very clear during the last two years with the uh, COVID-19 pandemic is the importance of protecting and taking care of our mental health. As a matter of fact, uh, ACB's community has a call, I think it's once a week, on taking care of our mental health. One of the things that was the convention committee was putting this year's program together is we thought it would be a good idea to have someone come and present on the importance of mental health and taking care of it. So with us this afternoon, we are very pleased to have Elizabeth Phillips, who is a middle school teacher in Springfield. But on the side, she also does presentations about mental health awareness and taking care of it. And Rachel heard her at work, was very excited and brought this to ICB. So without any further ado, I'd ask you to give a big ICB welcome to Elizabeth Phillips. Guys, my, if you ask my middle schoolers to describe me, the first two words they would use is really loud and obnoxious. And probably the third one is really antsy. So standing still is not really my thing. So how's everybody doing? Fabulous. All right. So you may be thinking, what? in the ever-loving heck is a middle school teacher talking about mental health for. But I, for 12 years, did mental health counseling with children, adolescents, and families with Memorial Behavioral Health in Springfield, Illinois, and I loved it. I absolutely loved it. But then I wanted to find something that would combine my two degrees, my degree in teaching and my degree in counseling. So I went to a special school, a behavioral school where I taught there and I got to combine both of those. So I love mental health, but at the school I was at, I got three concussions in a matter of a couple months because the kids there were wanting what they wanted when they wanted it. I started teaching in Springfield at a regular education school, but I didn't want to give up the mental health side of things. So I continued to do psychiatric emergencies on nights and weekends, and that has kind of morphed into this mental health speaking gig. So I love teaching parenting classes. I love working with youth, and I love talking about mental health. I have been told lots and lots over the years, that I don't have mental health. People will say that to me all the time. I don't have mental health. And I am here to tell you that everybody has mental health. If you are breathing, you have mental health because mental health is really just how you're feeling about yourself every day and how you feel about the world around you every day. It really is that simple. So everybody has mental health. Mental health is on a continuum. So some days you wake up and you're better than others. And that's very, very normal. And mental health is always changing. And so is mental illness. It varies so much. And sometimes that can make people feel very out of control. But it's okay that it feels different. So your mental health is reflective of a couple different things. It is your self-concept, which is a mixture of your personality, your likes, your dislikes, your habits, your attitudes, your abilities, and it's kind of how you would describe yourself. So when somebody says, hey, can you describe yourself? Tell me what you're good at. That is your self-concept. I would say, well, I play volleyball and I coach and I teach and I love mental health and I'm really loud and I'm really boisterous. That's my self-concept. 
that's different than your self-esteem. Your self-esteem is how you feel about those things. So I've always been loud and I have always been obnoxious, but I haven't always been okay with being loud and obnoxious. That has always been a part of my self-concept, but how that's affected my self-esteem has changed over time. I'm really okay with being really loud and obnoxious now. Like when I was younger, it wasn't really seen as something that fit in well with the pattern of people that I hung out with and the places where I was in my life. Now, if you don't like loud and obnoxious, you better find someplace else to be because this is me and I ain't changing. The way that I would like you to ask yourself where your mental health is from day to day is asking yourself a couple questions. Can I have a positive outlook today? There are some days that we do not want to have a positive outlook, but there are also everyday positive things that we can find. Even in the worst days, there's something positive to be found. If you woke up that day, that is something to be happy about. So if you wake up and you cannot find anything positive that you think is going to happen in your day, then we can put a little point on the negative side of our bracket, okay? The second question is, can I recognize what I'm good at and what I'm not good at? It's really important for you to take stock of that and be able to say, I am really good at doing X, Y, and Z, and I really suck at A, B, and C. It doesn't make you a bad person if you suck at A, B, and C. It just means you have a choice to make. You're either going to choose to get better at A, B, and C, or you're just going to say, you know what, can't win them all. And there's no really right or wrong answer to that. So if you can wake up every day and say, I am good at this and I'm bad at this and I'm going to find a way to work around that, then we have one in the pot. We have a check in the positive side of our bracket. The third thing is, can you set realistic goals for yourself? I all the time hear from my middle school, I'm a special ed teacher. So in the course of doing our special ed paperwork every year, we have to ask the kids, what do you want to be when you grow up? And they all inevitably say, I want to be a football player. I'm going to the NFL. (laughs) And while I appreciate the enthusiasm, I have to say to them, sweetie, that is not a realistic goal, right? So can we wake up every morning and say, today, I'm going to get these things done. I'm going to make a list and I'm going to stick to it. Or can I wake up in the morning and say, you know what? My life is not going the way I want it to go. So what am I going to change? If I wake up tomorrow morning and say, something about my life needs to change. So let's see, maybe I'll become a supermodel. That's not a realistic goal. So can you wake up every morning and say, I'm going to get this done, or I want to change this, and here's how I'm going to do it. The fourth thing is the ability to relax and have fun. I am not a great relaxer, okay? I like to be in motion a lot of the time. And at 47, it still takes a lot of work sometimes for me to be able to relax. But I'm getting a better grip on it. But if you are a person who is high key all the time and you're like, 
I gotta go. I gotta go right now. What are we doing next? And as soon as you're done with one thing, you're on to the next thing. That is a clue to you that you need to check in with your own mental health because you are going to drive yourself into the ground if you can't learn to take a step back and see how you can relax and have fun. If you're in a group and you always feel like you need to be the one who's entertaining everybody or the one who's always needing to make decisions or the one who's always doing everything for it, do you want a drink? Can I get you a snack? What do we need to do now? Do you want me to turn the TV on? That's not okay. It's okay for a little while, right? But at some point you have to be able to shut that off and just relax with the people that you're with. So next is the awareness of your emotions and how you express those. Okay, now I'm not gonna lie. I hang out with middle schoolers six hours a day, five days a week. Sometimes I lose my stuff. I am not always perfect at keeping my emotions in check, but I can look at my students and say, wow, that was not okay. My bad. So being able to feel happy and feel sad and feel frustrated and feel angry are very important. And being able to name those emotions are also very important. So when you're taking stock of your own mental health, being able to say, oh, like I felt that when so-and-so came to me with bad news, I felt that to my core, but what was I feeling? Was I feeling irritation? Was I feeling sadness? That's very, very important. And then taking the next step and saying, what did I do with those feelings? It's very common that we are mad at somebody and we yell at poor someone else. And the someone else has no idea what they have done to deserve whatever we just gave them. So being able to recognize that you are frustrated in handling that appropriately, or even bigger, being able to go back and take responsibility for the mistake that you made and say, you know what, that was so not about you. That was all about me. My bad. And moving forward. So next time when you feel that emotion, you can get ahead of it and make a better choice. Accepting constructive feedback from others without being defensive. The first thing that happens when my student gets an F is, why you give me an F, Miss Phillips? Well, sweet pea, I did not give you an F. Well, how do I get my grade up? Well, you earned an F because you were sleeping in class. My constructive criticism for you is to stay awake in class and then your grade will go up. They're middle schoolers. They don't have a lot of emotional self-awareness. They are not ready for that constructive criticism. I still love them. I will still hug them. They're just not ready for it. And I would like to say that all adults, adults are ready for constructive criticism, but that's just not true. You have to be willing to hear hard things about yourself and you have to be willing to decide whether those hard things are something you're going to deal with. When I was a therapist, I told people all the time, people can say to you whatever they're going to say. You have a job to do once it comes out of their lips. And that job is to assess it for truthfulness. And if they can tell you, you did very poorly 
at your job this week. Okay. Do I think I did poorly? If the answer is yes, then I have a choice to make and how to change it. If the answer is no, I have a choice to just let it go. Just because someone said it doesn't make it true. But because someone said it, it's something that's going to affect my mental health. So I have to assess it for truthfulness and then decide to deal with it or let it go. Adapting to new situations also affects your mental health. They actually have a, an official point rating system on changes that are made in people's lives and how stressful they are. So things like divorce score really high on the adaptation scale because they require so much effort to adapt to. Of course, things like I go to the store and they don't have my coffee creamer. Those are very low, right? It's very irritating when I go to the grocery store and they don't have the things that I always buy, but I can adapt and overcome. There are other things that are harder to adapt to. And if you are unable to adapt to changes that are happening in your world, that's going to create a change in your mental health. Very normal, okay? Just because you're having trouble adapting doesn't make you abnormal. It just means you may need some help to get through it, and that's okay. Accepting others and being able to show empathy to others. If you are the person who is always irritated with everybody who would not do anything the way that you would do it, like, my way is better. Why aren't you doing it my way? Hold up here. Then we need to take a step back and look at that because you are allowed to think that other people are being inefficient, but you also have to show empathy for the process that they're having. If my uncle dies and I'm like, well, you know, that sucks. Let's move on with the world. That's my dealing. That's my adaptation. That's my coping. That's my accepting. If it tears someone else up for weeks, I'm not going to judge that because that's their process, that's their adaptation, and that's their view. We could have had two very different relationships, but you can't judge somebody else for what they're going through. I would prefer if you came alongside them and figured out how to help them through it because that's way more productive. And the last mental health check question is, are you able to show resilience in the face of hardship? Sometimes life just sucks. There's no other way around it. There's no way to candy coat it. Things are hard. But if I can always keep my eye on, I'm gonna be okay. This can't last forever. Then there's some kind of mental health resilience there that I can grab onto and move forward with. This brings us to mental illness, right? We just talked about mental health, which everybody has. Now we're going to talk about mental illness. So mental illness is a condition where your mood, thinking, or behavior changes drastically. This is also on a continuum because not everybody's mental illness is at the same level. I can have a mild uh, mental illness or I can have a severe mental illness. So it's on a continuum. But diagnoses for mental illness come in lots of different shapes and forms. And some diagnoses require more understanding and more care than others. Now, here is my caveat. 
This presentation is not intended to give you information to make your own diagnoses. Okay. And in college, when you go um, to college for psychology or mental health, there's an entire diagnosis that like students then think they have every diagnosis that they're studying. <laughs> so I give you this presentation, not because I want you to take these tools and diagnose yourself, but I'm giving you this. So you may recognize something that you need to treat or that you need to talk to someone about. Treatment follows a process as well. So you don't get to diagnose yourself. That's why we have doctors for that. And there are different classes of mental illness that doctors classify those in or therapists classify those in. So the first class is anxiety disorders. So anxiety disorders are when you have fears or worries, they can be real or imagined, that get in the way of your everyday life. Some diagnoses in this class are OCD, phobias, panic disorders, post-traumatic stress disorder, and social anxiety disorder. So like with OCD, thinking that I need to flip the light switch 10 times so I can make it successfully through the rest of my day, that's not necessarily a real worry, but it is real inside that person's head. Mood disorders um, are also mental illnesses, and those are unpredictable and extreme changes in mood that seem unprovoked or inappropriate. So I was fine. Sally dropped a dish on the floor, which was not that big a deal. And my reaction is volcanic. That kind of unpredictable or unprovoked response is kind of what we're looking at. So diagnoses in this category are depression, major depression, dysthymia, which is I'm depressed for a long, long, long period of time, and bipolar disorder, which means I'm up and I'm down. There are also personality disorders, which is a long-term pattern of thinking and behavior and emotion that's dysfunctional, extreme, and inflexible. So these are kind of the people who always think they're right and always think that it has to be their way. And when there's something to be done, they're going to ask you to come to them to do what they want to do and then give you 12 reasons why you can't do what you want to do because it's too much of a problem. So there's avoidant personality disorders, dependent personality disorders. So clearly avoidant personality, they're avoiding everyone. Histrionic personality disorders are the one where everything is a big deal. Oh my gosh, there's a squirrel outside my window. I'm going to die. Those people are kind of fun to watch from the outside because they get themselves so worked up, but they are not a, a lot of fun to have to interact with because everything is an emergency. And then there's an antisocial personality disorder and a borderline personality disorder. Then we have the psychotic disorders. So sadly, this is what most people think of when they envision in their head a person who has a mental illness. So psychotic disorders make it hard for you to think clearly, make good choices, communicate effectively, understand reality, and behave appropriately. So these diagnoses are schizophrenia, delusional disorder, or brief psychotic disorder. So these are the people who it's not necessarily the reality of those diagnoses, but it's given that rap for the most part in people's minds and in the media. So then we have eating disorders and eating disorders is when you have an unhealthy relationship with food, your weight, 
exercise or your body shape or image. So those are anorexia, bulimia, binge eating disorder, or body dysmorphia. So anytime you're eating too little, eating too much, eating too much all at once, working out excessively, right? That was mine. When I went through my divorce, I was at the gym for an hour every day. And then I would run and then I would bike because that was my coping skill. And it just went too far. And so I had to have a friend be like, girl, you're going to kill yourself. Dial it back. Then we have all the substance abuse disorders. So that's when using a substance gets in the way of everyday life. So alcoholism, binge drinking, which is binge drinking is when you have two or more drinks in one sitting, alcohol dependence, or addiction to any specific substance, cocaine, marijuana, methamphetamine. Some people would say caffeine, but I myself could be addicted to coffee, so I am not going to go there. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, if I don't have my morning coffee, heaven help my students. (laughs) Then there's executive functioning problems. So if you've ever heard anybody talk about ADHD or ADD, those two things have now been melded into one. So there technically is no more ADD, it's all ADHD, and then there's two separate kinds. So there's ADHD inattentive type, which are the kids who, like the people who are staring at the ceiling. I'm kind of the poster child for adult ADHD inattention. They're just kind of everywhere, they zone out and have to bring themselves back. And then there's the hyperactive kind, and those are the kids who or the people who can't sit still, have to be moving all the time, they have to be fidgeting. When we were in the throes of COVID and I was teaching from my house, I was on my yoga ball bouncing up and down. So executive functioning problems when you struggle to organize or regulate behavior in ways that help you accomplish a goal. So it's, oh, look, it's time to cook dinner. So I'm going to start dinner. And then you're going to be like, oh, I started to take the trash out earlier. So you're going to stop cooking dinner and then you're going to go get the trash. And then while you're taking out the trash to the trash can, you're going to be like, oh, I forgot to fix the lock on the door. And then you totally forget that you even started dinner until you walk back inside like an hour later. You're like, oh my gosh. So in executive functioning disorder, you can't always start a task and finish a task before your brain wants to go to something else. Executive function is all controlled in the frontal lobe of your brain. So it's one of the last things to develop. So your brain grows from the back by your neck, all the way up towards your forehead. And executive functioning is one of the last things that matures, which is why we love children, but they have trouble controlling themselves because they don't have that part of their brain function yet. So they can't always control their impulses and emotions. So executive functioning disorder, quote unquote, is not yet in the DSM-5, which is the magic book of like mental illness diagnoses. Um, But there's more and more evidence of its importance because there are a large category of kids who have some executive functioning disorders, but they don't quite qualify for ADHD, and we're not really sure where to put them necessarily. So there are different levels of care when you have mental illness. The care is also on a continuum. It goes from very light help to very intense and significant help. So level one is for mild symptoms 
And that's when like you can control your symptoms by just talking to a friend. So if my mental health is down for a day and I am frustrated, irritated, sad, mad, I can talk to someone, vent, and then be like, whew, that is what I needed. Thank you for listening. And then I feel better about the situation. The second level would be psychotherapy or individual therapy that you can use for mild to moderate symptoms. So taking that next step, getting an appointment, maybe talking to your doctor about referring you to a counselor. So you have a professional that you can talk to that has lots of resources organized for you who can recognize some patterns in your behavior and help you solve a long-term problem. The third level is like an intense day program. So that would be where, just like you would go to work every day, you go to a counseling office and they work with you individually and in a group of people to work on your mental health. And so you would go, however the program is set up, Monday through Friday, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, but you go there, you're there all day working on your problems, probably working out some medication issues with a psychiatrist if they have one. The next level is partial hospitalization. So you would go to a psychiatric hospital for a time so you can get yourself together. When I did psychiatric screens as a therapist, that's what we did. We were assessing to see if we needed to admit you to a psychiatric hospital. Um, It's not a decision that mental health professionals take lightly, but sometimes it's just something that has to, has to happen. Then there's residential treatment. And that's where you go live in a place that can help you with your mental illness. This is traditionally what we think of for people who are addicted. So when you go to like a rehab program and then six is inpatient hospitalization. So you're inpatient for a long time. The time varies, but you're there every day, all day being assessed by mental health professionals, psychiatrists, psychologists to figure out how they can help you, what medications are right, what medications are wrong, what the patterns are that you need to break, and who in your life can come alongside you and help you once they're ready to dismiss you. Okay, that was a lot of information. Does anybody have any questions about anything so far? Executive order. Executive functioning disorder? Yes. Mm -hmm. For kids, hard to evaluate them. But you also indicated that's the part of the brain development that's one of the last things to develop. Uh So how how does that work? Do you expect some type of executive functioning for kids in that level? Maybe something you would expect them to do at their age or something? You do. So there are age-appropriate milestones that you would like a child to hit, just like we want a toddler to walk and talk at a certain time. So executive function kind of goes the same way. So when we look at like symptoms of ADHD, we're comparing, we'll just pick a nine-year-old child. We're comparing this nine-year-old child to other quote-unquote average nine-year-old children. Okay. Thank you. All right. So now we're going to talk about some myths about mental health. So some people will tell me that mental health problems don't affect them. And I will say, if you think you don't have a mental health problem, that's fine. But somebody around you, somebody in your sphere has a mental health problem. So it's cute that you think that it doesn't affect you, but it does. 
The facts are 47 million Americans experience some kind of mental illness, and only 4.5 of those are seriously mentally ill. So when we talk about how people envision mental illness as the person pushing the shopping cart down the street, mumbling to themselves, that's not where our heads should go. Because only 4.5% of the 47 million people have serious mental illness. We just don't feel comfortable as a culture or society talking about mental health or mental illness. Myth two is that when people with mental health issues are violent and unpredictable. So again, that goes back to what we've kind of been sold in the media. And the fact is that only three to 5% of violent crimes can be attributed to individuals with serious mental illness. And people with mental illness are 10 times more likely to be the victim of a violent crime because they're vulnerable because they're either in a place where they want to trust somebody who doesn't deserve to be trusted, or they put themselves in situations that are not always safe because they aren't able to think clearly, concisely, and make wise choices. Myth three, you can snap out of a mental illness if you just try hard enough. People refer to this as the pull yourself up by the bootstraps mentality. And in America, we love that mentality. We love a good bootstrap story. And I will never deny anybody their bootstrap story. I don't think I have a bootstrap story. I've been through some, some rough stuff, but I don't think it's bootstrap stuff. But when it comes to mental illness, sometimes mental illness just boils down to the chemical makeup of your brain. And you can't change the chemical makeup of your brain. There are things that we can do to change lots of parts of our physicality, right? The healthier we eat, the better our bodies work. The healthier we eat, the better our brains work. But mental illness sometimes boils down to just the chemicals rushing through your head. And there's no amount of bootstrap work that's going to change that. Bipolar disorder diagnoses comes with a side effect of those people feeling okay when they're medicated. And they're like, I am just fine. I do not need this medication. And then they'll stop taking their medication and then they'll drop into the low part of the bipolar. And then they have to start that work all over again. It can be so hard to recognize that pattern. And sometimes people recognize it in us and don't feel comfortable saying anything, but we're not recognizing it in ourselves. Mental health problems have nothing to do with people being lazy or people being weak. Many people just need help to get better and they don't know how to get the help. They don't know where to get the help. They don't even know who to ask to get started. Biological factors, genes, and brain chemistry are determiners of mental illness problems too. Sometimes we go through something hard and that can put us into a depression. Sometimes we go through a situation that causes us to have anxiety for the long term, but sometimes those things are out of our control. Life experience, trauma, physical illness, or abuse history contribute to mental health struggles, but they are not solely the cause 
of 100% of mental illness. So we have to stop thinking that people can just snap out of it and they can just choose something different this afternoon that's going to make them better tomorrow because that's not everybody's reality. Myth number four is that once a person has been diagnosed with a mental health problem, they will never, ever recover. Can you imagine if you went to the doctor and the doctor said, you have influenza A, you are never going to recover. And you had flu forever and ever. I could think of few things that would be so miserable, right? Because when I get the flu, I'm tired, I'm run down. There's so, so much that comes with that. And so sometimes we feel like people want to ignore a mental health problem because they feel like if they have to face it, it will be there forever. But studies show that people that seek mental health treatment do get better. If it's not a brain chemistry problem, there are therapists who can help you deal with whatever's happening in your life right now, help you make better choices, wise choices, see it in a different way or help you get through whatever you're going through. Or if it's a significant mental illness that needs medication, you can see a doctor, a psychiatrist, who can help you regulate your brain chemistry and your moods. So you're ultimately able to live, work, learn, and participate in the community. And that marks your level of recovery, not how long you live with it. But once you have a mental health problem, you can recover. You can be resilient. Myth number five, I cannot help a person with mental health issues. So you, as a person who is affected by someone else's mental illness, there are ways that we can help. Our society doesn't make it easy because again, we find it really taboo for some reason to talk about mental health struggles, but you can be someone's right-hand man in terms of helping them recognize that there's a problem and helping them find the help that they need. Only 44% of adults with a diagnosable mental health problem receive the treatment that they need. Yeah. Somebody just said, wow, Zoomers, sorry. There is a great need. And if COVID showed us anything, it's that mental health problems abound. And I will be the first one to admit, when COVID hit, I had my accelerator down to the floor of the car. I was doing so many things. I had my full-time job. I was doing a couple other side jobs. I didn't want to be still and I didn't want to be alone. And then COVID hit and I had no other option but to be still and alone. I did a lot of mental health work during COVID. I'm hoping that the takeaway, the mental health takeaway from COVID is that it is okay to seek help and that it's okay to have downtime and it is okay for you to tell your friends or your family that you feel like they could have a better life. Now, it's all about the packaging, right? So don't, don't go up to your Aunt Sheila and be like, girl, this speaker that I, that I just heard said that I needed to tell you. Because Aunt Sheila is not going to be very polite about that, probably. It's how you package that message, right? So package it well, package it with empathy, and let them know that if they're not ready for help right now, that you will be there when they are ready for help helping them access professional services, I can tell you 
working an insurance plan can sometimes be mind numbing. At work, we are getting ready to switch insurance companies. Nothing in my world since COVID started has been more anxiety provoking than trying to figure out how to switch insurances. So many choices. So having someone that you can just sit down with and say, okay, this makes me nervous, but how do I find mental health services? And insurance companies don't always make it easy. When you look at your insurance benefits, you can't just call the 1-800 number generally on the card and be like, I would like to know who my mental health providers are. If you have a company, they usually contract with a second company for mental health services. So you call the first phone number and they say, oh, we don't do that here. You have to call this phone number. And it can kind of turn into a merry-go-round situation, which itself is maddening. So having someone else to help you navigate that can be invaluable. And then refusing to define that person by their diagnoses. So... If you get a diagnosis of depression, that doesn't define who you are. If you have a diagnosis of bipolar, it doesn't define who you are. It helps shape who you are. But as people coming alongside someone with a mental health issue or illness, we don't want to define that person by their diagnoses. Just like we wouldn't define a cancer patient by their cancer diagnoses. We want to treat them with respect, and we don't want to be dismissive of them in their presence. So as I was growing up, I have two or three aunts and uncles who are intellectually disabled, and some of my family members were very uncomfortable with that. So when they would come into a room, they would be ignored by some of my family members. Now, I don't think it was because my family was out to be mean to them. I think my family just didn't know how to handle it and they weren't comfortable with it. But when someone with a mental illness comes in, sometimes they already feel like they have a label on them. So not acknowledging their presence with a, hey, how's it going? Or hi, how are you? Can feel like the weight of a thousand pounds on their shoulders because they already feel different sometimes and they just want to fit in. So myth six is that prevention doesn't work. So prevention can be defined as many different things, right? So our first level of care was talking to a friend. That qualifies as prevention. Seeing a therapist qualifies as prevention. Anything that stops you from going to the next level of mental illness or lower rung of mental health is prevention. But the prevention of trauma Emotional and behavioral disorders focuses on addressing known risk factors. So when we put someone in a situation where they might face trauma, that's not prevention. Putting someone in a situation and helping them think through every way that they might be in danger in that situation is prevention. Sending a kid back home to a house where they're abused is not mental health prevention. We have to try and expose people to healthy coping skills, healthy coping mechanisms, so they cannot put themselves in a place where they're at risk for mental illness through post-traumatic stress disorder and other things. We have to promote social emotional health of people so they have a better quality of life, a longer lifespan, and improved family life. My goal every day, if I cannot teach a kid how to write a correct sentence, 
or I also teach history, teach them something about the constitution. The saving grace is if I can at least teach them a coping skill to tell someone about their thoughts, their feelings. I've helped them more because that's a lifelong skill that they'll need to be successful. So now that I hit you with a lot of other information, we're gonna talk about something a little more fun. So now we're gonna talk about self-comforting. Self-comforting is a skill as old as time. And I lovingly label this section, can I suck my thumb now? <laughs> I know that sounds really weird, but when we think about it, a baby sucking their thumb is their very first self-comforting skill, right? For the most part, babies don't even need us to teach them where their thumb is. They find it on their own. Sometimes I have a grandson who's six months old and giving him a pacifier was just irritating to him. He was like, people, I have a thumb. I know where it is. Everybody back up. Babies learn from what we offer them in terms of self-comfort. They find the thumb themselves and we let them have that for years. We rock them, which is a self-comforting tactic. We bounce them, which is a self-comforting tactic. And we make noises to them, right? Well, shh, it's okay, baby, it's okay. Those are things that we're giving a child to learn to self-comfort themselves. And as parents, we're not looking at this child going, I am teaching him a lifelong skill. Bounce, 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 bounce. We just do it because it's something that's kind of innate to our nature. But for some reason, we don't continue that in teaching children necessarily how to recognize emotion and manage their emotions. So when we become adults, we also have some self-comforting tactics. Usually we do these things without even recognizing them. So some common self-comforting techniques that we do as adults is we rub our face or our neck or we rub our hands together or we rub our head or we rub our hair. So I am always self-comforting myself. Like, like I put my hands in my hair and I like scratch my head. And that's, that's my cue to my students to be like, Miss Phillips, are we irritating you? Oh, sweetie, <laughs> you're so cute. <laughs> Self-awareness is really important when it comes to self-comfort, right? So if I'm talking, if I can hear you wringing your hands over and over and over again while we're talking, I should probably just address the elephant and say, are you feeling very anxious today? And they'd be like, ooh, how did you know? Well, I feel like you're about to rub the skin off your hands. Can we talk about that? But we as adults don't necessarily learn good comforting tactics and we're not great at hiding. The leg bouncing is also another one when people bounce, bounce, bounce their foot. Guys, I get so irritated when I go someplace and I'm like sitting on a bleacher or a shared seating and I can feel my entire body bounce because the person like five seats down for me can't be still. That takes a lot of coping skill for me. There are some Jedi mind tricks that you can try and use, right? Self-comforting allows us a choice in a moment when we have nothing else. So usually when we're doing a self-comfort thing, it's because we are very uncomfortable with something that is happening. Either something that's happening inside our head that no one else can see, 
or something that's happening out in front of everybody inside a situation that's making us very uncomfortable. And we do that self-comforting tactic because our body doesn't know what to do with all of that anxious energy. So when we can be aware of our emotions, we can actually choose then a self-soothing activity to do instead of the activity choosing us. So knowing that we need these skills is half the battle. And we don't teach kids these things. The other half is diagnosing the soothing skill that you would like to use. So once we're in control of choosing the self-comforting skill, we are more in control of our emotion. And I'll tell you, if you want to choose to wring your hands as a self-comforting, self-soothing skill, do it. But make sure that you're choosing the skill and the skill is not choosing you. Zoomers, get your unmute buttons ready because I'm about to ask an interactive question. So what are some of the Jedi mind tricks that you guys use when you need self-comforting? What are some of the things that you do to calm yourself? So if you're here in the room, raise your hand and we'll get you a microphone. Oh, we have one. Breathing. Yes, breathing. I teach kids all the time. We have box breathing is what we teach them that it is. And it's like three seconds in, hold for three seconds, three seconds out, wait for three seconds. Breathing is really important. And you can tell, you can see in brain studies, somebody who's anxious, and then they start an intentional breathing pattern. You can watch the brain change and calm down. That's a great one. We had two other people here. I have one more real quick one too. Usually not if anybody is in the room watching me, but I do tapping too. Ah, (laughs) I don't know if anybody knows what tapping is, but so I would just think of this. So what is tapping is kind of an acupressure um, kind of a technique. And it's just a, um, there's certain points on your forehead and, and across the front of your collarbone and your wrist. She's getting real fancy on us people. I like it. We have two right here in the middle. Sometimes I will rock. Or sometimes I will just kind of tap my foot on the floor or my fingers on my, my leg. Yeah. Those are two things. Yeah. Those are great. I love like musical patterns even. If I need to tap, I will tap a song. Yeah. What I often do, I don't do many of that. Like I, I will um, do a little bit, a little bit of a tapping, but, but, you know, I think listening to sometimes on the mood, I think upbeat or soft music. That's what I do. Yeah, absolutely. And that's great. Kids these days can't handle silence. Like when we were younger, we expected long stretches of silence. Kids these days don't have that because they always have something with them in front of them that's making noise. So I have discovered I have to play music in the background in my classroom all the time, or they feel the need to blurt because it's so uncomfortable for them to have silence. So do do Somebody's phone just went off with the Andy Griffith tune zoomers. It's okay. It's okay. You could have answered. I would have put them on the microphone and we would have had a great time with that. Okay. So for the last couple minutes, I'm going to say, this is where I say, prepare thyself for some self care. 
This is where you get to take care of you. I call it the rest and digest, where you get to unplug, be down, and actually spend time in your head with the things that are happening so you can either come to grips with them or decide you need help with them. Now, you have to be ready for some pushback because people are going to give you some of that. People tend to judge you if you choose self-care because they'll say, well, who has time for that? Ugh. You're such an overachiever. Oh my God. Like, boy, I wish my husband or my kids would give me time to do that. They'd never let me do that. Don't you feel selfish when you do that? Don't you have other stuff that you need to do? Yes, I have a million other things that I need to do, but I'm not going to get them done because the executive functioning part of my brain is never going to let me get them done unless I go rest and digest. Thank you very much. Namaste. People don't understand why giving that one little piece of self-care can give them so much in another arena. If you do self-care consistently, you will see great payoffs in the amount of things that you can get done, the efficiency of your brain, and it will do so much for you because you're able to live in the moment with the person that's in front of you. Okay, I'm opening it up for questions. You were saying the silence business with the young kids, if you give them a test and they have to do their work and you don't have music playing or something's going on, they just don't react well. Oh, I mean, no. things like that. Do they fidget? No. Or I allow a fidget. I have standing desks in my classroom and like they call them wobble chairs. So the bottom of the chair is not flat. So the chair constantly like moves in a circle with their body. So they don't have to be still. But when they, there is nothing silent in my classroom. Because again, they have to fill the silence with something. One more question in the back. Do we have any Zoom questions? Well, I just have a comment. Something I have learned to do is to take a day and do downtime. You know, right in the middle of busyness. And I know I have things I need to get done in my house. And I know this and that. I have just learned to take a day of downtime. And I feel so much better after doing that. I really Absolutely. It's kind of like driving a car. If you drive your car 800 miles, you have to stop for gas. Your body is the same way. I have a couple pages at the end of my presentation that are online therapy services. So I will forward those to the, the powers that be. So you guys have access to those if you need it. There are also a couple services on here that are not online therapy, but it hooks up people who want to be helpful with people who have mental health needs. Just make sure that any of these things that you decide to try, you try wisely and carefully but I'll make sure that those get out to you guys so you can see them. All right. Thank you so much, guys. Elizabeth, thank you so much. Um, very good education and educational uh, content this afternoon. That sure is um, good uh, information. I know, I know one of the things that my doctor has always has told me is that it kind of relates to mental health is that don't go right from electronics and things to try to go right to bed because you need to give yourself a little bit of downtime. So thank you. Next on our program this afternoon, at some times as we move through life, we uh, decide that we're not real, we're not as thrilled with the place we're currently living as we uh, might maybe were. And we decide we might want to make a change there. And some people, if you own, if you want to own a piece of property, you know, to call home, how do you go about 
going through that process of buying real estate if you're blind. Uh, what are some things that this afternoon? So Karen and I are going to talk with you this afternoon about something that we did over two and a half years ago now, but again, we were supposed to have this convention in 2020, so that's kind of why we're here. And so we um, purchased our home uh, that we now live in, in uh, Springfield, and we did that in summer 2019. So I kind of want to go through kind of what it was like and some things that, that you need to be aware of as a blind person. You know, So I'll talk a little bit about a few things and then... I'll uh, let Karen fill in uh, with some things that uh, that she might want to add. So since she's back there taking notes, first thing that you have to do, of course, is like anybody, is figure out where it is you want to want to look for property. Maybe you want to uh, move to a different city, as we did. Maybe you just want to look somewhere in the same town. Uh, maybe you want to go to a Go to a different country. Some people want to do it. And I can't really talk about foreign countries or I can talk about different states. So maybe you want to move to a different state. Maybe you're getting up to retirement age and uh, you think that, you know, it sure be nice to go to Florida. So I don't have to shovel snow every day and uh, stuff like that. And the second thing you need to think about is kind of what type of situation do you want to move into as far as a living situation for owning? Because you can own uh, a single family home or you can move into a condo, a condominium. And uh, there are different situations with that. Once you kind of think about where it is you'd like to put down some roots and uh, buy some property. So you need to kind of think about where it is that you want to, once you find where it is you want to live. Uh, I would say after that, Maybe, especially if it's a market you're not familiar with, you might want to then try to locate a real estate professional in the area that you want to move into. And one of the things you might want to do is kind of get an idea of what size type of piece of property you're looking for, and then maybe get some idea what the what the market looks like in terms of prices and that kind of thing. What we did is our dear friend, who's no longer with us, Larry Turnbull, had purchased a piece of property sometime before we did, a couple of years before we did. So it helped us find the real estate agent that he used, a woman who worked at the time for Colwell Banker, now works for Keller Williams Infinity, Connie Huskett. And we decided to go with her because she, of course, had had experience working with a blind person, with a blind, with someone who's blind. And so thought that might be helpful. I always think that if you can find people who've had a little bit of experience with us, it's good to, then they kind of know, you know what to expect and you know, there's not a lot as much as many surprises. And finding a good professional who's going to be honest with you and upfront with you is really important because you're going to be relying on that person when you go look at places. Unless you've got family or somebody that can go with you, you're going to be relying on them to go through and look at places. Now, a lot of times today, people buy places sight unseen. Personally, I would never do that. That's just <laughs> that just can lead to a lot of trouble. But you know what? A lot of people do it, and a lot of people have good success with it. What we did was we contacted Connie and said, "Hey, you know, we're looking to move to the Springfield area. Uh, what are some good areas in the community to live in? Kind of what were we looking at price wise? Here's kind of what we're looking at wanting in terms of of, of a home." And um, and she was able to kind of give us some ballpark ideas of, you know, what we might be looking at 
price-wise, kind of a range of prices. And, and that's important because of the next thing you're going to want to do. And I would really recommend that if you can do this, to do it. And that is, unless you're able to pay cash, which some people are, you're going to have to get a mortgage. And so what you're going to want to do, what I, what I would recommend doing if you can do it, is we'd recommend is try to go in and get pre-approved. And so what pre-approved means is that a bank or a mortgage lender is going to check uh, your credit, and they also are going to find out about your, your source of income and what you're able to put down in terms of a down payment or what you're thinking about putting down. Based on that information, they'll come up with a a letter that basically says that you can afford to purchase something up to such and such a price, $200,000, whatever it might be. And so that is helpful because when you go out and start looking at places and you want to write offers on them, you're going to know, hey, you know, based on all the information that's been put together, this is what we can afford. There are rules about, and I think they're federal rules, about debt to income ratios. So you can only have of your total income, you can only have about 43%, I think it is, something along that line, going towards housing and everything else has to cover all your other expenses. And um, you, you, you want to go in and look at that. Now, when you go to get pre-approved, you go through that process. One of the things you're going to want to do, if you have been somebody who has tried to be vigilant about ID protection and frozen your credit reports, unfreeze them. Just temporarily get them unfrozen and make sure that when you have frozen them that you remember how you did it because it's a little bit of a headache to go through if you maybe forgot a password or something or lost a password or something with the credit bureaus. Now, there are three major credit bureaus, and uh, if you've frozen your credit reports with all three of them, you should unfreeze with all three of them, or just you know, temporarily unfreeze that. Experian, E-X-P-E-R-I-A-N is one credit bureau, Equifax, E-Q-U-A-F-A-X, and TransUnion, T-R-A-N-S-U-N-I-O-N, are the three credit bureaus. If you have taken that step, to protect yourself by freezing your credit, you're going to want to temporarily unfreeze it for this purpose. So do that before you go in to talk with someone about getting pre-approval. What they'll do is uh, part of this, they'll go through, and in the case of the lender we went to, and I don't know if others do it differently, but in the case of the lender we went to, uh, J.P. Morgan Chase, they looked at all three credit reports, and then what they also look at is your credit score. If you have issues with your credit, and there are all kinds of things that can affect your scores, things like if you're carrying a lot of, not necessarily a lot of credit card debt, but if it's debt, it's like way you know in arrears, like maybe you've got, if you're somebody that uses credit cards but tries to pay them off every month, that's fine. That's what you should be doing. If you're somebody that um, you have maybe some collections, maybe uh, the worst are medical collections where you've got a medical bill that got sent to uh, a collection agency and they're trying to collect on it. Those can ding your credit report and ding your score pretty good. To get a mortgage, you have to have a score. I think what I've heard is generally of about above about 700. And don't ask me what goes into figuring out credit scores. It's uh, what you call your FICO score. And I don't remember what FICO stands for. I was going to look that up before this and I forgot what it stands for. But what will happen is, so when you're going for your pre-approval, they will look at your credit scores and they take 
kind of the the middle of the bunch and I average the three of them out and they'll take a look. That's what Chase does. Maybe others do it differently. I don't know. Once you get that pre-approval in hand, it's time to go shopping. And so what, what we did was we went with Connie and we kind of had given her an idea of what we were looking for. So she had a few places in mind that we would go look at. And so we got to go through each place and, you know, actually go into the homes and walk around, kind of get a sense of what it was like, what it would look like, you know, where things like uh, the basement stairs were and how, you know, in the, go in the bathrooms and kind of, you know, you can go in and feel around and, and you know, play with faucets, you know, flush the toilets, do all that stuff. Everybody does that to make sure that things work right and that things are okay. You might go through a few places, you know, certainly be asking questions. Um, if you're not sure about something, don't be afraid to ask questions. You're really putting your trust in your real estate professional. So you want to make sure that person is, when you hire that person to work or have that person work for you, they're what they call your buyer's agents. They're representing you as you go through the process. You go through, you look at some places and you say, hey, here's this one. We really like this one. We think we want to, we want to buy it. And so then comes writing the contract and writing the offers. You say, okay. So you, you, you want to know what the place is listed for. So once you have that information, what you'll ask your real estate professional is, you know the market, what would you recommend? What would you suggest we, we offer as an initial offer for it? That's what we did with Connie. And we wrote the contract based on that initial offer. What can happen and what may happen is the person selling, obviously they want to make as much money as they can on their property. Some, some things I definitely recommend you do. And that is two things. One is if you can, so you've, you and your professional that you're working with have found a place. If you can have somebody else that you trust, at least get online and take a look at the place and give you their thoughts. That's worth, that's valuable because then you know that, Hey, you know, we're making a good choice here. Um, if you can't do that, that's, that's fine. Again, the person you're working with is representing you. Um, so then after that, then you, and the second thing I would definitely recommend anybody do if you're buying a, a place is that um, you're, you're, you're investing a whole lot of money. You want to make sure it's a good investment, especially when it comes to health and safety. So get a include as part of the offer to purchase that you're making a home inspection contingency. Now, you'll have a few days if your offer is accepted to get that done. And it's like usually five business days. So you'll need to be talking to whoever you're working with to say, okay, who in this area does home inspections that we can contact? And you have to pay for that. Usually when we did it in Springfield, it was like $325 or something like $325, something like that. It's just part of the cost of going through this, this process. The real estate person will help you write the contract. You can do a lot of the signature stuff online. However, a lot of real estate companies use a program called Dot Loop, D-O-T-L-O-O-P. It's doable with JAWS and or NVDA and that, but it's not, it's marginally accessible. If you kind of know what you're doing with it, it'll work. What I would suggest maybe doing with the initial paperwork, because you do have to sign in a lot of spots and initial in a few spots, go through that 
just regular on paper if you can. So if you can do that, go through that on paper because you're going to be sitting down with the person that's helping you. And so do that on paper. Once you get that done, then if there are changes, because every time you, you change one of these contracts, that change has to be signed off on by both parties. So initially get everything, the big initial signatures done on paper. And then once you've done that, but the more important thing to do before all any of that, they don't have to read every word to you unless you want them to, but at least have them explain the key things about the offer that you're making. I mean, you're the one making the offer. What am I offering to pay for this property? What contingencies do I want? I mentioned home inspection. Do I want a home warranty? And that's a good idea to get that because at least for the first year that you're in a place, because if something goes wrong, we'll say the air conditioner or whatever, you have a company like American Home Shield, which is the big company that a lot of places use. And they'll warrant anything that goes wrong for like the first year or so. And you can extend that if you want. You can pay for that if you want. You want to try to get the seller to buy that for you. If they feel good about their home, they should want to do that for you. There are other things you can ask for. Maybe you're going to want to have a certain credit for property taxes because in Illinois, we we have this weird system where we pay property taxes one year behind. You're going to want to have the seller give you credit for some of that or bring some money to include to help pay some of that. You know, you're, you're going to want to have... Um, and I don't think you have to actually put this in the contract because I believe you're entitled to it in attorney review. Uh, you're going to have an attorney review the contract once you sign it, the initial contract, make sure there's nothing wrong from a legal standpoint with what's been done. You, you, you come through, you make the offer, you sign the contract. Your mortgage lender is going to want you to get homeowner's insurance and you would want to make sure that's done before you close, which is the other part of this process. So initial offer you make, you sign that contract. That goes back to the person selling. They say, hey, Karen and Ray want to buy this house, buy your house. They want to pay this much for it. Here are the things they're asking for. What do you think? The seller might come back and say, yep, okay, this is a good offer. We'll go with it, which means that's an accepted offer. The clock starts ticking on the things that you've agreed to. Oh, one of the, let me back up. One of the other things you will want to agree to is what they call earnest money to put up front. Usually it's most time I've seen anywhere from like a thousand to three thousand dollars. And you have to pay that out right away within like three business days after you make you sign the contract. You get an accepted offer. So that and what that says is, hey, I'm really committed to this. I've put down this small amount of money. Think of it as a deposit on your purchase. You will sign the contract. The seller might say, Yes, okay, I like this offer, or he might say, or she might say, no, I want you to pay, let's say you offered $180,000 for a property that was listed at 185. Seller might say, well, I want 182.5. Okay, no, that'll, they'll come back. Your real estate professional will come back to you and say, hey, this is what they're asking for. Are you good with that? If you are, you really like the place and it fits within what you can afford, you say yes. Or maybe you might say no. Say no, I want to pay 181.5. Something like that. But what I'm trying to get at here is there's a negotiation that goes back and can go back and forth. Once you agree on a price, then the offer becomes accepted. You send in your earnest money, and then you want to set up the home inspection within the time period that's been allotted for that. Again, usually five business days. So what the home inspector does is they come through and they're professionals that can look at the home kind of as it looks at, the, at, at any given time. 
and they give you a report, say, hey, these are the things I saw, you know, hey, this looks good, or maybe you should get this taken care of. The things you can strongly ask for, strongly demand be done has to be anything with health and safety. If the furnace is not up to snuff, you know, that's a health and safety issue. So you can say, hey, I want to get this, I want you to fix this before I move in. A lot of times, if there are small repairs that need to be done, you don't want to say to the seller, well, why don't you just fix those before I move in? Because they're trying to get rid of this place. They want, they're trying to get rid of this place. They're going to do the minimum required. It has to be done to in a workmanlike manner is the language that's used. But what you might want to say is, hey, why don't you give me a $1,000 credit or whatever, and I'll take care of it. That way it's done to your standards and what you, what you want to have done. Again, if it's anything health and safety related, yes, you can force that to get done. And you probably want to be involved in uh, identifying who's going to do the work if it's, if it's something like that. It can get pretty detailed. Like if there's basement walls involved, they may have to bring in structural engineers. It can get a little messy with home inspections. But generally speaking, it's not too bad. I mean, if you've gone through and looked at a place, you and whoever's working with you are going to be able to tell if there are major, major problems. If there's major problems with like grading and stuff like that, where you could have water in your basement, you might not even want to go into that house because you, you can see that when you pull up. We, we had one that we looked at that you could just tell that there was a problem, that there could potentially be a red flag. And you say, okay, I don't think we'll consider that one. So now you've got your home inspection done. You've got the report from the inspector, which they put together, gone back to the seller, say, hey, you know, there's a few things I want done. And you agree on what's going to happen. Your mortgage is moving through the process. You know, all the I's are being dotted, T's are being crossed, and, you know, everything's going along pretty good. And then you get to closing. Now, closing's the big day, because that's the day you get the keys. And... Uh, <laughs> What, we, what happened with us, again, don't be afraid as you go through this process, this, your real estate professionals working with you and others are working with you too, your, whoever your loan consultant is, you know, the home inspector, I would say go to the inspection and when they do the inspection and don't be afraid to ask questions if there are things you don't understand. Because again, you're, you're putting a lot of money into this. You want to know as much as you possibly can. And uh comes and I'm going to say the biggest thing, one of the biggest things about this whole process, make sure you've got a signature guide, maybe a couple of them, because you're going to sign a lot of stuff. Again, some of the stuff going back and forth. Um, once you get the initial signatures done, you can do some of that electronically and it's actually pretty easy. You just go on, say dot loop and it says click here and you just click in and it actually, you just make sure say, Hey, my name looks good. My initials look good on here. I'm just going to go ahead and take the signal you know, and sign the stuff that goes back and forth, which is just a couple of signatures usually isn't too bad. Now we get to closing. So what will happen the day before closing, uh, your, the, the lender you're working with will call you and say, okay, you need to bring a cashier's check worth this much money to closing. You might want to go a little over that because they always, a lot of times they always forget stuff. So let's say they say you got to bring $24,500 to closing. You might want to bring 25000 just to make sure that there's nothing that's forgotten. And they'll tell you how to make it out and everything. And the closing's done through a title company. Uh, so you go and you, you go and they go. And, and again, 
your real estate person or your attorney, you know, can, can both be there and they can help you understand the documents that you're signing. A lot of it's like the loan documents, the deed to the house. Those are things that are fairly straightforward. As always, we should always know what we're signing. Then once you go through all that, you get the keys and the place is yours. And it's a <laughs> wonderful feeling. But um, uh, again, that it's important. I think the purpose of this discussion really is that it's important to have professionals and people working with you that you trust. Don't be afraid to specify when you're talking initially to a real estate person, the things that you need say, Hey, you know, I need a, I need a place that's near public transportation, or I need a place that's got sidewalks around it so I can walk and, you know, walk in the neighborhood. Don't be afraid to specify those things, you know, find out, make them do a little bit of legwork because sometimes things like well, example, for example, how can I, would I be able to access paratransit if I need that? Make them do a little legwork on that. They have resources. They know the market. They have resources. They know how to uh, do that. If you want places that you can walk, grocery stores and things like that, that you can walk to, let, let them know that. And based on the, the, the things that you ask for or things that you're looking for, they'll do their best to find places. I will take a question in a couple of, I'm take questions in a couple of minutes. I just want to see if Karen wants to add anything to what we've talked about. We hoped maybe we could tell you about selling a place today too, but we're not quite through that yet. So that'll be next year's program. Here, uh, here, here's Karen. Um, the comment that he made about the, uh, Credit Bureau is a very good comment because I had frozen uh, one of my reports and I called them to try to you know, get it unfrozen. My problem was I didn't remember the date that that was done. And if you get that wrong, you basically got to file a re written request, send them a copy of your ID and all that fun stuff to get it done. I mean, I was able to get it done, but it was a little extra hassle to do it. So make sure you know how you did that. It can save you some hassle. Also, when we were working with Connie, she had some ideas of what uh, she thought was, was safe. But, for example, one place Ray had looked at the night before I got down, and then we went and looked at it. Because he, he liked it at first, but we went back and looked at it, both of us, and we were like, eh, the basement stairs, that wasn't real well set up, <laughs> potential for trouble. But we saw the house that we're currently in, and we just fell in love with it. One of the things that, that sold that, I think, was that upstairs laundry. If that's something you want, let your realtor know that, especially if that's, if that's important to you. And part of what we did when we did the contract is we wanted to make sure that they left the laundry equipment. So we specified that in the contract. That laundry equipment is dials. It's not the touch screen. It's dials, which is, makes it a lot easier to operate. That's a couple of, a couple of things. And... Unless Ray's got something more, I think we may be ready to take questions. One just quick thing. If you are used to using services like Be My Eyes and Ira, they can come in real handy. Even after you get moved, you get into the place because 
Like for example, the laundry equipment, you know, Ira actually helped us figure out how to operate that and provided some guidance on it. And I will also say this, we used Ira extensively recently getting ready to move because they were just very, very helpful. I'm ready. We're ready for questions. Okay, I um, heard Albert's first. I think I heard Albert first. So let's get Albert a microphone. Thank you. A little bit of the benefit of my own experience, if I could. This has to do with buying a condo, which is what I did. Buying a condo means that I'm in a unit that I own in a building that a property management company owns. There are advantages and disadvantages to this. In the first place, Ray brought out some really good positive things about working with a realtor. I also had the benefit of someone who had previous experience working with a visually impaired person. So I was able to say to him, I I was still working at the time. And so I said, the building I'm working in is a high-rise building that has revolving doors and multiple elevator banks. I want to come home to a building totally different than that. He found me a unit on the first floor of a building which still has security, moderately secure, and is within walking distance of a bank, within walking distance of a pharmacy, easy to get to public transportation so that the commute isn't really stressful city to city and all that like it can be. Furthermore, the property manager already had taken this building and renovated it from apartments to condos. And so my unit, when I moved in, had appliances that the property management company moved in. I had the benefit of a brother-in-law who was a Maytag serviceman. He looked at the things they put in and he said, you're going to need to have better things in here than this. You should come up with your own money and buy a better quality washer and dryer, a better quality dishwasher, all this. So that, I hope, uh, gives some idea what uh, other considerations there might be with this kind of a purchase slash move slash adjustment. Thanks, Albert. And uh, Sharon's next. So the biggest thing about a condo that you need to think about as compared to a single family is... Or a town and townhome, I think too. You're going to be paying a monthly assessment uh, fee for that. So, kind of know what the association is. And the, and the other thing about condos, if you're going to go condo, try to be able to put more than ten percent down, because if you can't, if you, if you can only put, if you have to put less than ten down. They have to do a deep dive into the condo association, the budget. Now, you may want that uh, because you may want to know as a potential owner what the status or stability of the association is and that. But it's a pretty deep dive. And there is some new stuff with condos now. Was a new questionnaire that some the lenders probably are going to be asking. Does everybody remember what happened in Seaside, Florida about a year ago with that collapse down there? And it also happened in Waukesha, Wisconsin. There was a condo that was building that was deemed unsafe and had to be torn down. There, there's a questionnaire that uh, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, which are the two main mortgage uh, regulators at the federal level, have put out. And it has to do with structural integrity, inspections, and all of that. So they're trying to make sure that the building is safe, which is certainly something you would want if you're going to be moving in. Jimmy Sue, go ahead. I tried to to buy a home. I share an apartment with someone for like 34 years, and her family wanted to help us buy something because they said, well, you know, 
then that way you wouldn't have to keep moving. So we started working on it. But then we were told by a banker that the ages that you are, you, you shouldn't consider buying a home. And I was in my, my 60s and she was in her 50s. <laughs> um, should age be a, a consideration? It's probably it probably is illegal <laughs> even to do that. And so that's definitely you would want to maybe work with a different bank if you're going to do that. And by well, the way, I wonder why they told us that. I wonder I don't well, there could be all sorts of reasons that they told you that, Jimmy Sue. And we don't want to go into the here. And by well, the way, things like things like, you know, race and stuff yeah. can't be considered either. That's redlining and they can't be they can't do that. But you, know, yeah, you have to consider I was told things that you have to consider. You know, consider you've been running an apartment all these years. When you buy a home, everything is on you. You don't defer to a landlord if the furnace stops working, for example. Yep. Yep. That, that's and, very true. And consider. Yep. Definitely. So, so that was my it. question. That's why. And that's exactly true. You know, for some people, renting might be something they want to do, just not to have to deal with all that. That's, and that's the thing about condos, too. Everything outside your unit. Uh, is taken care of. Uh, you, you own basically everything inside the four walls of the condo unit. Everything outside is taken care of uh, by the, the association. And there are benefits to that. And certainly that's very true too. The thing about renting is, and, and I do believe they have to, they have to at least, if you need some sort of special accommodations, like maybe you need a talking thermostat, for example. I think under the Fair Housing Act amendments, and I don't want to get into that whole thing, but they would have to consider putting that in for you if you need that. Karen's tapping on me, so I think she wants to say something. We knew there were some things that we were going to have to have hired done, like the, like the lawn. You, you find somebody that you can trust. You know, Maybe there's somebody in the neighborhood that does that kind of work, and that was the case with, with us. We were told by the neighbors that... Um, or somebody that did that kind of work around the neighborhood, you hire somebody to do that kind of stuff. And I also say we couldn't have dropped into a nicer neighborhood if we tried. Sharon, do you now have a mic? Ray, while they're getting the microphone to Sharon, I just wanted to say I'm a condo owner, but I'm in a weird situation where my condo is actually like a townhome, but they call it a condo association. Uh-huh. And so what's cool about it is that I have the benefit of having a house, basement, main floor, top yep. floor. Yep. But I don't have to worry about doing the lawn. I don't have to worry about snow removal. I don't have to worry about trash. Jeez. They take care of everything on the outside and I take care of everything on the inside. Good. Okay. I, ha I have a microphone now. I had been looking for a house over the years and uh, could not afford what I wanted. I did try to get something. Oh, my gosh. Maybe 10 years ago. And um, went to see this place with, uh, with the realtor. And I asked my son and his, now his wife to take a look at it. He came back and he was really mad. And he said, don't ever go to a place alone and rely on the realtor to tell you about it. But um, so my kids have been the ones to have purchased homes in the last couple of years. And the difference in, at least in the suburbs where they have moved, and in the city, too, and we've talked about with the realtor as well. And actually, the person that I am mentioning works a lot with seniors. Um, but when the kids, when my sons were looking for a place, 
there's so much competition for housing that you have to make your decision really fast. So what my older son and his wife did in 2018 and my younger son and his wife did in 2019 may not be the same as what you're going to go through right now. Because in fact, my younger son, Kevin and Denise, they lost a, a deal on a house in a matter of hours. So, you know, like there's so much pressure for this type of thing, but it's, uh, but the other thing about condos too, is not just the price of the property, but how much is the association fee? And that adds a lot Mm -hmm. to it as well. It sure does. And what you're getting for that. I mean, are you, do they have a a pool and a clubhouse and, you know, some of those nice, nice amenities. I'm going to cut the questions. We are happy to, to answer any questions that anybody might have. I'll let Jim have the, okay. Oh, oh, wow. When you go to sign your contract on your house and everything, after you're agreed on, you want to go out and buy furniture, you want to go out and do this, don't do that until you sign the papers because that will change your credit ratio. Yes. So I just want to let you know that don't go out and 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 other and the other thing you don't do is like don't quit your job like right before closing. (laughs) We we listened to a show out of Milwaukee on WTMJ, and uh, the Acunet, Mor- Acunet Mortgage and Realty does it, and uh, out of Wisconsin. <laughs> they can tell you all sorts of stories about stuff that people have done that they shouldn't have done. Because one of the things they'll do before closing, and the employment one's a big one, is they'll call and make sure that so-and-so is still working there. Guys, thank you very much. I'm going to go ahead and move us on to our next program. We have a convention sponsor this year, and that is Democracy Live. They uh, are involved in the accessible voting arena as far as making voting more accessible to uh, individuals uh, who are blind or visually impaired who have print disabilities because they were so generous to us. We need to give them a hand for that. Help cover, defray some of our expenses. It gives me great pleasure to give them a few minutes to uh, talk about what they do and a little bit about uh, Democracy Live. So who do we have from Democracy Live? I don't know. Thank you. This, this is Brian Finney. I'm joined by Charlie Canoon and Melissa Carney from Democracy okay. Live. Okay. All right. Well, Brian, Charlie, and Melissa, go ahead and take it away. You've got about 30 minutes. So Thank you. It's certainly an honor to be able to help support and, and, and sponsor your, your wonderful convention. It sounds like uh, you got a lot of positive feedback already. The uh, streaming on the Alexa is something I, I haven't heard before. So that's that's a fantastic innovation that maybe that's through ACB radio or got to try that sometime. That's really exciting. So my name is Brian Finney. I'm the president and founder of Democracy Live. Uh, joining me today is Charlie Canoon, who's our education and outreach coordinator. And we also have Melissa Carney, who is a member of the Council of the Blind. Uh, Melissa's over in New York and, and she'll introduce herself later while she does a demonstration of the reason why we're here today. And uh, what we're talking about today is voting. I don't have to tell you all how important it is uh, that we have fair and equal access um, to the ballot and to the voting process, that all voters should have the same access to the ballot wherever you want to vote. And if that's at a polling place or if that's at home as an absentee voter, you should have equal access to that ballot. Good news today is, is uh, to announce that Marxy Live in the state of Illinois, um, in large part due to many, many of the, the members on this at this convention and, and through your advocacy and education to the state to encourage and influence them to provide 
an accessible absentee ballot. We are now working directly with the state of Illinois to provide in this upcoming election and for the November election, an accessible absentee ballot. And that's that you should be, you should apply. I mean, that's a big, big deal. Not all the states are doing it. And it's again, because of your, your advocacy and and, and your efforts at the local level to try to encourage your state to uh, understand the importance that access to a private and independent ballot is really critical to the democratic process for all voters, regardless of disabilities. We're honored to be here today. Marks Alive is is the largest provider of accessible at-home voting in the country. We happen to be, I was going to say we're in, we're in 26 states, but now we're in 27 states because of the efforts in the state of Illinois. Allowing you all to have the option to be at home, use your home device, and access your ballot without having to ask somebody to vote for you at home is what we've been told, at least an important step. We understand that what we're going to be showing you here today is only the first step. What we offer is an is a, a cloud-based online balloting portal. And uh, you'll be hearing more about this, hopefully, from the state and, and, and from your local elections authorities. If you don't, though, I, I think I would encourage you all to make sure that your, your local elections officials are making it available, that they're turning it on. And I'm going to walk you through how it works at a very high level. And I'm going to turn it over to, to uh, Melissa, and she's going to be using her screen reader. Uh, I believe she's using JAWS um, to be able to walk you all through the process of being able to access your ballot market from home. The caveat to this is that we believe it's a great new first step to be able to offer independent, accessible access to your ballot. But in the end of the process here, you do still, at least for now, you'll be printing off the ballot. So we're not quite all the way to where we want to be. Uh, we want to have the ability to access the ballot, mark it, review it, and then electronically return it without requiring a printer. But baby steps, we're going to just take you know the, the, the first key step, which is going to get us halfway down the field. Um, but the touchdown is really being able to do a full electronic return of the ballot. Uh, we're fully aware of that. And again, through your advocacy and education, at the state level, there's a good chance that I bet Illinois is going to get there. So with that, I'll just, um, at a very high level, walk you through how it would, it would work. It's a cloud-based solution, which means it's an online portal, like an online website. You'll put in your first, last date of birth, access your ballot, mark it, review it using whatever screen reader that works best for you all. And then you'll have to go through the process of, of actually printing it out. But we can talk about some of the tactical next steps on how to kind of eliminate that requirement of printing it out and potentially electronically returning the ballot if you all believe that it's, it's a good idea. But again, it's an honor to, to help support the Illinois Council of the Blind at your, at your convention. And I'll stop there. I'll respond to any questions that you might have before turning it over to Melissa. I think Charlotte's got a question. Thank you so much. Would we be able to do this on a iPhone, for example, or do we have to have a computer? You know, I, I think Melissa can, can speak to that. Melissa? Absolutely. That's a really good question. So this system has been tested with over 90 combinations of browsers and screen readers. So you can use anything from JAWS to voiceover. So absolutely, whether it's a PC, a Mac, an iPhone, absolutely, any of that is available. Now, that being said, though, Melissa, right, that in this particular case, they do have to print it off in Illinois. 
Oh, they can print, and the iPhone can print, so that would be a great option. Okay, let's have Melissa do her demo. I think we're ready for it, right? Yep, that's it. Go for it, Melissa. Awesome. Well, hi, everyone. It's a pleasure to be here today. I'm in the state of New York, and I'm an educational outreach consultant for Democracy Alive. It's my pleasure to be able to demo the electronic ballot system for you today. As Brian mentioned, I'm just going to be showing you the one-way ballot marking However, with advocacy efforts, as has been already accomplished in other states, we'd love to be able to make this a fully accessible process and be able to promote that electronic return option as well. So again, for today, I'll just be showing that one-way marking. I'm going to share my screen in one second. So the first step in this process is what we call voter lookup. So this is where you'll enter in the credentials that are specific to you as the individual voters. This will be your name and your date of birth. So you'll notice that for each page, there's a handy little announcement heading that's letting you know exactly what phase of the process you're on. So in this case, Please heading level one voter lookup. that heading says voter lookup. Under that centralized heading at the top of the page, you'll find the instructions associated with the page. So I'm going to down arrow here. Please fill in the fields to access your ballot. Okay, so those are the instructions. First name. First name. Required invalid enter form. We're going to enter into that box and I'm going to type in sample. Okay. Sample. Last name. I tabbed to last name. I'm going to type in voter. Tab once more. Voter. Month combo box required. We're now in a combo box. I'm going to down arrow to January. One. Tab again to the next combo box. Day combo box required invalid. So here we have day. I'm going to down arrow to the first. One. Tab once again to the last combo box. Here combo box required. And I'm going to down arrow to 1999. All right. Once you've filled in those credentials, you can tab. Forms mode off. Continue button. Press space on continue. Voter lookup. Okay, and I'm just going Main to, menu to select an election. go to our demo election here so we can proceed. Please select an election, select button. Okay. Main region, ballot marking heading level. And now we can move on with the demo. So once you've filled out the voter credentials page, you'll come to this page with the announcement heading. Your heading level one ballot marking. Ballot marking. So you know that you're now on the ballot. All right, here's the instructions for this page. So we'll down arrow. Your ballot is presented below. To mark your selection, click on the checkbox. To remove a selection, click on the checkbox again. To vote for a qualified write-in candidate who is not listed on the ballot, click the checkbox beside the write-in space at the end of the candidate list. Then type the candidate's name in the space. Heading level 2 official ballot. Each contest for the ballot is organized with a heading, so it's really easy to navigate with a screen reader if you're using JAWS, just by pressing H. For U.S. Senator heading level three. All right, so there's our contest name and heading. If we down arrow. Vote for not more than one. We have the instructions. Group start for U.S. Senator. Three checkboxes. And it tells you exactly how many options you have to choose from. So here are the options. Santa Claus checkbox not checked. Ebenezer Scrooge checkbox not checked. Rotten checkbox not checked. We're going to up arrow and choose Santa. So we're going to press space to check him. And the Santa Claus for U.S. Senator group. Santa Claus checkbox not checked. Checked. What's really helpful to eliminate any possibility for confusion. It does, as you check the box, announce the specific contest of which you're making a selection for. 
So you have your, your contest and your selection listed together. We can press H to move on to the next contest. For representative to Congress heading level three. Down arrow. Vote for not more than one. Continue to down arrow. Group start for representative to Congress. Four checkboxes. Amelia Earhart checkbox not checked. Charles Chuck Eager checkbox not checked. Charles Lindbergh checkbox not checked. Ryan checkbox not checked. Okay, we're going to up arrow and choose Amelia Earhart. Char Char Amelia Earhart checkbox not checked. For representative to Congress group, Amelia Earhart checkbox not checked. Checked. Okay, next contest, so H for heading. City Council heading level 3. Down arrow. Vote for not more than 2. Okay, so as you can see, those instructions are a little bit different. So they're asking you to vote for two candidates instead of one. I'm going to show you what to do if you, let's just say you you didn't notice those instructions and you accidentally bypassed them. There is, there will be a warning message on the review um, when we move on to that phase of the process that will indicate that you've made the incorrect number of selections. Um, however, you do have the option not to fix that if it was intentional, but it is a great kind of self-checker to make sure that you've been following those instructions carefully. Okay, so I'm going to down arrow so we can hear our options for this contest, but keep in mind that I will be making that intentional error just to show you what it would look like in the review phase. Group start city council. Five checkboxes. Johnny Cash checkbox not checked. Elvis Presley checkbox not checked. Dolly Parton checkbox not checked. Right in. One of two checkbox not checked. We're going to select Dolly. Dolly Parton checkbox city council group. Dolly Parton checkbox checked. Okay, and we're going to move on to the next contest. For city waste director heading level three. Down arrow. Vote for not more than one. Group start for city waste director. Two checkboxes. DR. William McDougall checkbox not checked. Writing checkbox not checked. Here I'm going to demonstrate a write-in candidate. So all you would do for that is press space to check the write-in the write-in candidate box. For city waste director group. Write-in checkbox checked. Okay, down arrow. Write-in. Edit. And you'll see an edit box appear after you check the box. Forms mode on. So uh, we are going to uh, put up our <clears throat> lovely CEO, Brian, for this position. Forms mode off. Virtual PC. You right never to be a waste director, did you, Brian? Well, you know what? <laughs> I, I was thought of, you know, being a, a CEO of a voting technology company was just a stepping stone to being a, the head of the dump. <laughs> <laughs> we joke. He wants a career path change. Nothing wrong with that. <laughs> well, at least All his right. career won't be wasted. I know. Oh, I know. Oh, that's a good one. <laughs> So right in. if you go back up to write in, with you, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> if you down arrow here, Brian. you'll see that the edit box has now been filled in with Brian's name. Okay. So now that we've entered in our writing candidate, we can move on to the next contest. Article one heading level three. Okay. Vote yes or no. So in the interest of time, I'm not going to, uh, I'm not going to make you listen to the, the wards established by votersville. Um, but this is a text-based contest of which you would vote yes or no, as the instruction says. So I'm going to bypass the text. Shall check wards of civil among the group start article one. Okay. Two checkboxes. Two checkboxes. Yes, checkbox not checked. No, checkbox not checked. So we'll check yes. Yes, check article one group. Yes, checkbox not checked. Checked. Okay. We'll down arrow, keep, uh, continue to down arrow now that we're at the last contest. No, check group end. Go back button. Continue button. There's a continue button that we'll press space on. Selection review heading level one. 
Okay, there's that handy little announcement heading letting us know that we're on the selection review page. So we'll down arrow for the instructions as per usual. Your ballot choices are shown below. To change any selection, click the change button next to your selection. Heading level two official ballot. Just like the ballot, you'll see that all of these contests are going to be organized into headings. Okay, so we'll start with the first contest. So each for U.S. Senator heading level three. There's the contest name. Santa Claus. Our selection. Change for U.S. Senator button. And the change button associated with that particular contest. So once again, for Representative to Congress heading level three. Down arrow. Amelia Earhart. Change for Representative to Congress button. And next, City Council heading level three. Pay close attention here. Dolly Parton. Warning missing one of two selections. Okay, so there's that warning message letting us know that we didn't fill out the correct number. Um, so as I was saying before, you can bypass this if that wasn't intention that if that was intentional on your part. However, if you do want to fix that, change city council button. All you have to do is press this button. City council. It. Okay, it'll bring you to that exact contest on the ballot. Vote for not more than two. And again, the prompt and everything will look the same. Dolly is still going to be checked, so we just have to make that additional selection. And we'll choose Elvis, I think. Groups are five checkboxes. Johnny Cash, Elvis Presley, checkbox, not city council group. Elvis Presley, checkbox, checked. Okay. Dolly part, right in, right in, group end. Go back to review page button. We'll press go back to review page. That's at the end of all those selection options. City council heading level three, main region. City council heading level three. Now we are back on the review, the selection review page after we have made, have corrected that error. Just so you can see what that looks like now. Elvis Presley, Dolly Parton, change city council button. Okay, so it's uniform with all the other contests. So that error message has disappeared completely. So now that we've fixed that um, by choice, we can we can now move on to the next contest. So again, H for heading. For city waste director heading level three. Down arrow. Right and Brian. Okay, there's our right Change for city waste director button. And the change. And finally. Article one heading level three. Yes. Change article one button. Okay, we'll continue to down arrow now that we're at the last contest. Link skip to Bob go back button. Continue button. And once you feel comfortable after reviewing your selections, you'll press continue. Print these selections heading level one. And this is the part of the process that we identified as not being fully accessible. So this is kind of, I refer to as half accessibility. It's a step in the right direction, but this system and most states do still require you to print out the ballot. So you would have to provide a physical signature. So in order to do that, click on the print selections button below to print your ballot selections. After your selections finish printing, click the continue button to download your return packet. Print selections button. So you'd press space on the print button. Print preview dialog. Print preview dialog. Save button. Okay, so let it also be known that if you don't have access to a printer, which many of us do not, you do have the option to save it. So if you save it to your computer or save it to a flash drive, you have the option to bring it to a printer elsewhere. So that's really handy. That's personally what, what I've done in past elections. I've been able to utilize this system. Um, so that's an option. Cancel button. Um, and so I don't save the millionth duplicate copy I have from doing all these demos, I'm going to cancel. Print your selections, um, but ordinarily, you'd save it or print. 
All right. Go back button. There's a go back button. Continue button. And continue. So we're going to pretend as if we printed it or saved it. We press this continue button. Return instructions. Heading level one. Return instructions. And your return instructions will vary based on the state you're in. So Illinois will have its own separate set of instructions. Again, in the interest of time, I'm just going to go right past all of this text so we can get to the end. From our author, return what is in list of three bullet, 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 list and returning your list of one, place on two, three, list and very important. The time you need to up before your list of one, two, three, list returning your return. FL never fell under go band session button, go back button. Those would be the instructions. Again, there's a lot there. There will be a lot there um, when you're when you're getting those instructions from your specific state. End session button. Okay, so once you've successfully printed out your ballot, you've read the return instructions. I strongly recommend having a copy of them as well saved elsewhere. Then you can end session. Success heading level one. You'll get the success message. The ballot is printed with your selections on your ballot. You have the option to scan and re-add back your ballot selections. The next step is to fold your ballot for privacy and insert the ballot into your absentee ballot return envelope. Please be sure to sign your name in the designated location. Thank you for voting. And that concludes the demo. As you can see, what's great about this technology is you don't need advanced skills to be able to go through your ballot. It's just a matter of simple navigations, using simple keystrokes. And of course, you, as I mentioned before, with given over 90 combinations of browsers and screen readers, you can use whatever piece of technology and software that you feel the most comfortable with. So it's highly personalized and individualized to your, to your needs. And I think that's what makes the system so unique. Um, so thank you so much for listening. Melissa, well, I have a question. My question is on those um, selections. So let's say there are, there are check boxes. So mm-hmm. let's say it said vote for one and I tried to check two boxes. What would happen? That's a good yeah, I'm, question. From Chicago, I'm from Chicago. We vote early and often. <laughs> <laughs> I believe what, what then happens is it defaults to the last box that you checked as a uh, lot of a lot of those systems do. Yeah, Melissa, I'll, I'll jump in there. In most states, it depends on the state rules. But if, um, as an example, you're only allowed to vote for one contest and you accidentally select a second candidate on that same contest, it would give you a warning and, and let you know that you have to deselect before you um, can select another candidate. Gotcha. That's, that's what I wanted to know. Thanks. Any other questions for the democracy? This is Patricia Prince, virtual Trisha, please. I'm not sure if I was paying attention very well. Did I miss you when you were talking about doing this balloting? Is this for when you're voting from your home or is this like where you're going someplace to do this voting? This is from the safety and security of your home. Okay. I was asking that question because I kept on thinking about if you were in their facility and this thing was talking, you know, it's kind of loud. So I was just, I couldn't remember what you had said. Thank you. This is uh, making vote by mail accessible. Do we have any other questions for Democracy Live? Uh, we've got Karen first and then Sharon. So Karen. Quick question. When you tested this, was one of the combinations that you tested with using a Braille display? Yes, absolutely. Okay. And since, a, and I would think, I thought it would work because while well, they were getting the mic to Sharon, uh, because a, a screen reader drives a braille display. So, but well, it's mm-hmm. a good question. Sharon Howerton. Uh, my question is, I've never done this before. How does one register to vote by mail? 
So in the state of Illinois, what you'll do is you'll contact your local elections official, your local clerk, I believe it, in, in, in Illinois, and uh, they will then send you a link. And that link you'll click on and it'll bring you back to the experience that Melissa just walked you through. So you'll get your ballot. So what you'll need to do is contact, let's say if you're in Chicago, it'd be the Chicago Board of Elections. In suburban Cook County, it would be the Cook County Board of Elections. And there, there are 108 election authorities across the state. So the other place you can probably contact if you're not sure locally what to do is your the state board of elections and i'm sure they'll have as they get this process up and going they'll have some directions on that any other questions i have a question okay terry helsley at the end of the process you're used to print it if you don't have access to a printer you say you could you can take your phone and like hook it to your laptop and like print from the phone through your printer that way is a usb did I get that right? So you can upload it onto a flash drive or save it on to your computer. And, and then if you put it on a flash drive, for example, uh, or if you, you download it onto your phone, whatever your preferred method is, you can bring it to a printer. As long as it's a portable option for you, you can always bring it to a printer if you don't have access to one personally. Well, I just didn't know if you could like hook your phone into your computer and print that way. You should be able to copy it off your phone to the computer and then Mm -hmm. print it that way if you wanted to do that. Sure. Or email it to yourself or yeah, there's a, there's a bunch of options. And it saves in PDF. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. Any other questions? Maybe we can take one or two more. I have a question. Hey, there's Tim. Good. So you print it out and then you... Put it in an envelope and then you sign on the envelope? Yes. So I, I believe the state will be still mailing out the return envelopes along with the signature signature page. And until we get the full electronic return of uh, this experience, you're going to probably perhaps need to maybe have somebody show you where to sign or the instructions will tell you where to sign as well. But the instructions will say, print off the ballot and then put it into the envelope that we mailed to you. And that'll be mailed out to you by your local elections authority. But again, longer term, we would like to be able to do what we're doing in some of these other states to allow you all, if you wanted to, do the entire process electronically, eliminating the need for the printer. Yeah, Tim, just to tag on to that a little bit, what we're trying to do is get the state, the authorities to basically, could you sign on the back of the envelope, the opposite side from where the, the address is? So we're trying to get them to allow that you you can sign anywhere and it will be valid. And sometimes you have to sign in a specific spot. And in some states, they've actually like put holes in the envelope so that you sign between the two holes. You can do that. But again, Brian's absolutely right. We don't want to have to do that forever. We want to be able to, to electronically return the ballot. But you don't you don't have to sign the ballot itself. You just have to put it in an envelope. Sign the envelope wherever the right place on the envelope is. Right? Yeah, that, that's correct. Okay. Yeah, you don't sign the ballot itself, no. Okay, thank okay. you. All right, no problem. Brian or, or Melissa or um, uh, Charlie, did you want to conclude with anything and before we go to the rest of our program? Absolutely. Well, again, thank you so much for this opportunity, and we look forward to doing it next year if you'll have us and, and have our support. Just one final reminder, um, you have an election coming up uh, in June, and um, unfortunately, we've experienced in the last month or so a couple of states that had rolled out this type of technology in 2020 who um, I've been recently told they're not going to be rolling it out again in 2022 for this important federal election cycle, in part from what they've said is due to a lack of turnout. 
and lack of people participating in the 2020 election when they when this was rolled out. Now, in our experience, we've been doing this for a decade. The states need to be a little bit patient because it has a snowball effect. If done properly where they're promoting it and they get it out on, on the media and, and social media and really lean into it and, and make it available and, and where all voters are aware of the tool, it really starts to really snowball to the point where thousands and thousands of voters participate in this. In fact, um, your friends down the street over in Michigan, I, I think, had did a phenomenal job in, in promoting it. They had a, you know thousands of people use it. In other states, perhaps where, where they don't promote it as much, you're not going to see as much usage. So again, part of the reason why we wanted to come here today is to encourage you all, if you're so inclined, to use it. Because what we don't want to have happen, of course, is to go backwards. And unfortunately, we saw that happen last few weeks in a couple of states with the, the fact that, you know, they didn't get enough participation, so they didn't want to move forward with it. You know, if you're not comfortable, then certainly don't do it. But if you are so inclined, it'd be great to get some numbers so that the state would continue not only for this program, but additionally to add on the next module, which would be for electronic return. And that would really only happen if, the, if there was enough demand by voters actually using the system as it is today. That is a good wrap-up and actually a good segue into the rest of our program here for the next uh, 20, 25 minutes or so. Good segue. From, thank you, Byron. Uh, we'll, we'll jump off now. Oh, thank, thank you. you, guys. Thank All you right. so much. And thank you again for your sponsorship and your support. We really very much appreciate that. Yes. Thank you. Great rest of the conference. Thank you. Thank okay. you. He said something extremely, extremely important there. Our work is not done. Our work is not done. Yes, we're going to have, it sounds like, accessible vote-by-mail absentee ballots starting with the June election. And that's actually better than what we thought we were going to get. And, and I want you to know that ICB has been very prominent in this work. Several of us, and you'll hear a resolution tomorrow that uh, hopefully you will, uh, as members, will adopt that will um, quantify uh, some of what's happened. But again, our work is not done. We know, and again, we, we want folks to use this. And so what we're going to need to do is we ask that people go back home, contact your election authorities and say, hey, I want an accessible absentee ballot that I can independently receive and mark for the June 28th election. Now, this is rolling out. They may not know what it is yet or how, it's, how to do it yet. And so... That is something we will continue through ICB. If you're subscribed to the ICB-L email list, you can do that by ICB sending an email to ICB-L plus subscribe. Again, it's ICB-L plus subscribe at ACBLISTS dot org. You got to do lists, not list, because I don't know where you'll end up if you don't do that. Uh, so. You want to subscribe to that as we're going to use that as one of our vehicles to keep you informed. Also, ACBMC does and maybe other chapters do. We're going to try to use the calling. We're going to want to use your calling committees to get information out uh, about how to uh, request this. Again, Brian made a really good point there. And while it makes me angry because it seems like, well, why, why do we have to generate all these big numbers to get something we're entitled to by law, ladies and gentlemen? We are entitled to accessible voting by law, by the ADA, by the Help America Vote Act, and by uh, the Rehabilitation Act. And that's not limited to in-person voting. Why should 
in, if we have another, God knows, another pandemic, why should we have to risk our health and go out and vote in person when others don't have to? That's what we're fighting for here. But our work is not done because, as was stated, we're going to have the uh, accessible vote by mail, and you'll hear about legislation that was passed that's going to make that available. And But we were also promised that we'll get electronic return. Now, it's going to be a bit of a heavy lift, and I want to kind of explain why. Because every time you talk about electronic return, what do people bring up? Security. Now, it's interesting that they bring up security with the things we want when they don't necessarily bring it up on all kinds of stuff. And frankly, the same people that like to bring this up, and security is important. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying it's not. I, I work in tech. I understand that. But how many of the people that like to bring up security or the need for paper ballots are the same ones who go to an ATM machine and not bother to get a receipt? I bet a lot of them do. How many of these people that worry about security go online and shop on Amazon or shop on whatever? Now, I know that's different from our vote. I understand that. I think we all understand that. But again, those are some of the arguments you're going to hear. And there are, unfortunately, some powerful voices out there, common cause being one of them you know, that's raising this concern. We need each and every member of ICB to get out there and say, yes, we want this. We want to be able to independently cast or receive, mark, and cast our ballots in the way that we choose, that we each feel is most comfortable, whether it's voting it by mail, whether it's in-person early voting, or whether it's in-person at the polling place on Election Day. That's our right. We need to not stop until we get there. So with that all being said, we're making some great steps. And tomorrow, as I said, you're going to hear a resolution that hopefully you will adopt. And we're going to thank the legislature for taking the appropriate steps to start get us on this path of accessible absentee voting. But again, reminding us all that the work is not done. So um, it was a good uh, system. We'll, we'll certainly do our best to keep folks informed. But once the word kind of goes out there, we certainly need all each and every one of us to tell your friends, tell your, encourage them to, uh, to use it. It's not that hard to do, as you just saw and heard. Um, anybody that can use a website and a screen reader should be able to, you know, on whatever device is most comfortable for them, should be able to do it. I think it's just great that Democracy Live was able to be here and uh, do that. So I'm going to let Karen uh, add a few words here, and then we're going to take some questions and some comments. So uh, go ahead. I will say on a question of electronic return, some states do have it. What makes it more difficult in this state is that nobody has electronic return right now. In some cases, military and overseas voters, which is commonly referred to as uniform overseas citizens absentee voter act or UACAVA, those voters have it in some states. And that has, in some cases, made it easier for people with disabilities to get electronic return. North Carolina is an example of that. They got electronic return via litigation, but it was made 
a lot easier to get a positive court ruling because their UOCAVA voters have electronic return. We are not in that situation in the state. That does make it a lot more difficult. Um, there are some states that have electronic return by uh, legislation. I believe Colorado and West Virginia are two of those. West Virginia, I do believe, does have it for UOCAVA. Colorado might as well, I don't recall. That was the main comment that I wanted to add. And as Ray said, we are going to need all of you. I cannot stress that enough. One other quick thing, and that is, this is an issue that we are lockstep together as a blind community on, both ICB and ACB and NFBI and NFB. In fact, we've, uh, there have been several of us uh, from ICB that have been working with a core group of folks from NFBI, from Equip for Equality, which is, for those of you who may not know, is our state's protection and advocacy agency, Access Living in Metropolitan Chicago, Reform for Illinois. That one's significant because they're outside the disability community, but they get this and they understand how important it is. And in fact, they've been really good about providing us with some of the, um, what we might see as far as opposition and getting us access to some of that, uh, of that, of that information. We're trying to engage, uh, we've been trying to engage other groups. If anyone here in the room or out there listening can help, we would like to get veterans groups involved, uh, senior citizens groups, voting rights groups, uh, such as, for example, I know I'm aware that um, Stacey Abrams, who uh, is from Georgia, is doing a lot of voting rights effort work across the country. We're trying to engage as many people in this as possible because one of the things we did in getting the access that we're going to have through a, a bill, SB 829, that passed the Illinois legislature is... Uh, we actually did a community action and we weren't able to really get the word out on this, but it was really more orchestrated by Access Living and NFBI. They're more comfortable with the, the kind of protesting and that kind of thing. But we did get some media attention out of it. In fact, WBBM, Craig Delamore, who many of you probably heard, was there and he actually asked about it. The nice thing about this issue is it seems like at this point, once people understand it and you, you explain it to them, they get it because it's what it is. And the last thing I'll just say before we take some questions and comments is, as I know Dr. Bailey's got one back there, and that is, um, again, we want people to use this, but this in no way is saying you have to do it. If you still feel comfortable going to the polls on election day or going in person to early vote, by all means, do that. The most important thing is that you vote. And with that, we will take some comments and questions. Dr. Bailey, I think, was uh, first I heard back there. Thank you very much. This is Dr. Wanda Marie Bailey Crawford. I wanted to ask the question while the, our guests were here. Well, I do recognize the importance of the flexibility of uh, allowing us to be able to vote in a way that is conducive to our situation. I'm also very much involved and concerned about election fraud and the fact that a great deal of the election fraud came through electronic voting. So I'm 
interested in what these same companies that are advancing the use of electronic voting, what they're doing in terms of election fraud, because that's my concern as well. It's us being able to vote electronically, but it's also how do we manage the election fraud? They're not here now, so they we, can't answer my question. Well, and we we'll take it. We'll take that back to them. But we should. But Dr. Bailey, we should all be concerned about election fraud. Absolutely. But there is no evidence in any states that they have used this these electronic returns for people with disabilities that that has led to election fraud. And let me kind of get you into the weeds just a bit, because the general way these systems work is like they do with other absentee ballots. What you may not know is that uh, when you send in an absentee ballot, that's not the ballot that's fed into the machine. Even if you print one out and send it in and write one out, that ballot is copied to a regular ballot so it can be fed through the, um, the machines. And, and that's similar to what happens with these ballots. They're received by the election authorities. They're copied over to a, a regular ballot and then fed into the voting machines just like everybody else's ballots are. So yes, there could be something that could happen there, but there is no evidence of it. And as we all know, uh, many, many courts have looked at all the allegations that are being made about election fraud from 2020 and have found basically no evidence that that, that happened. I mean, there's, there's, there's fraud in every election, unfortunately. And by the way, if you go back to 1960, paper can be used to uh, cause issues, the ballot box stuffing and things that happened with the uh, Kennedy election in Chicago, unfortunately. It is something that it it, it absolutely is a concern. And, you know, and that's why I think organizations like Common Cause and that are concerned. The key thing is that um, safeguards are being put in place for, are put in place for this. There's been no evidence that we or that our group is aware of that there's been any issues that the electronic return for individuals with print disabilities has caused any kind of problem. But we will take that back to Democracy Live, and we can certainly uh, get you an answer to that question. I think it's a, I think it's a fair question, and it, it is something that people, we all ought to be concerned about. This is Patricia Prince. Can I say something, please? Go ahead, uh, Pat. Regarding the comment that they made just before they left, that when you said that our job is not done and I was at a meeting, there was an issue of trying to resolve an issue that wasn't getting resolved, just going around in circles. One of the words that came out was that the squeaky wheel is the one that gets heard. So what you said is absolutely correct. The squeaky wheel is the ones that they find and listen to. Those who just lay back and say, oh, well, forget it, won't get heard. So you keep pushing, they got to listen. I've also was told in, in a comment by a problem we were encountering that they said, well, we didn't know this was going on. We didn't know this was the problem. We'll look into it. I mean, I applaud you, Brian, and I agree that the more you push, the more they got to listen. That, that's what I want to say. Okay. First of all, I'm Ray, not Brian, but that's okay. Don't insult Brian. <laughs> sorry, because <laughs> Brian's name was lit. I'm so sorry. It's okay. That's all right. I've been called worse. Uh, but anyways, uh, no, I, I, I think that that's kind of the story a lot in advocacy, Pat, is that remember when we're out advocating on issues, and this is more general. We know a heck of a lot more about those issues than the folks we're talking to. And that's why when you do advocacy, and this is kind of the 101 stuff, and that is we, the personal stories and how something either might benefit you 
Take, for example, one of the ACB initiatives. It's HR 4853, Access to Durable Medical Equipment Act, sponsored by our own Illinois' uh, Jan Chikowski, uh out of the 9th District. That piece of legislation is a perfect example of how you can go in and say, hey, you know, if I have access to more accurate durable medical equipment, like more accurate blood pressure monitors or more accurate uh, insulin pumps or whatever, I can independently manage my own health and don't have to rely on perhaps perfect strangers to, 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 to help me do that. And I think that's, um, I think that is something that, um, so, so generally that personal story, those personal of how things will affect you is really important in advocacy. And you can do that with voting. The fact that maybe somebody in a rural area, like uh, here in downstate Illinois, maybe for that person, it's hard to get transportation to the polling place or to the early voting site. If they had a way to sit down and independently receive, mark, and cast their ballot from home, they might be a little more active voter. Those are the kinds of messages I think we need to be putting out there. So absolutely, the squeaky, squeaky wheel gets the grease. and you need to make sure we're squeaky. We've got about three minutes, so we can take a couple more questions, either in the room or on Zoom. Going once. So I know there was a bill in the uh, State House, the 829. It was, um, well, it was actually a Senate bill that just passed in the Senate, but then went over to the House. Isn't that right? It was passed by the House and Senate, Tim. Uh, oh. That happened April 8th. If we didn't get the word out on that as good as we should have, we apologize. But uh, that happened April 8th. It's now awaiting the governor's uh, signature. And um, what that will do, just uh, for everybody's edification, the way it was crafted is it would give us accessible vote by mail or absentee ballots for starting with the November 2022 election. However, as part of the negotiations on that, um, we uh, the group and the folks involved got the state board of elections to agree that they will do everything possible, and it sounds like they are, to uh, make something available for the June 28th primary election. So I know not everybody votes in primaries, and people have their reasons for that, and I respect those. I think that um, we have folks to work with. Yeah, but that did pass. Okay, and and then so the the voting would be through Democracy Live then, or in the no, it would be it'll be whoever the state chooses, uh, Tim. It sounds like they're working with Democracy Live. This actually brings up a good point, and that is here in Illinois for election stuff. Different counties and cities handle elections. We're a bottom up state in that systems that they use have to be certified federally and certified by the state board of elections, but. The counties in that can pick whichever system they want to use. So Democracy Live is certainly one option. Case in point in 2020, we had voting works. It was made available in a lot of the state. It wasn't marketed very well, which is why it didn't get a lot of use, in my opinion. But then some counties, uh, Cook County and Chicago, used Dominion voting systems. And they chose to do that. So there is some leeway for the authorities. But I think it's very likely that most of the state would use Democracy Live if they're working with them. We'll see how that plays out. And then, then another question is, with, the, with, this, with this legislation, would you still have to sign the uh, envelope? Yes, you okay. still have to sign the envelope because we only are going to have, and let's, this is it's good emphasis, 
the ability to receive and mark the ballot. You still need to get it printed out and get it into the envelope and sent in. That's uh, kind of the story on voting and advocacy. But again, we need everybody to be ready and, and act and use those uh, mail. I strongly encourage, as uh, Brian said, go home, contact your local election authorities and say, hey, I've heard this is coming. How do I get signed up? How do I get access so I can independently receive a ballot? And if you don't get a satisfactory answer, I definitely suggest contacting the state, the Illinois State Board of Elections and saying, hey, uh, this is not satisfactory to me. Again, we need to be that squeaky wheel and we need everybody's help. I want to thank Byron again for all his hard work this afternoon. I want to thank our Zoom crew, Belinda and um, Cecily and others out there helping us out. Uh, Joe on, on ACB Media with the streaming this afternoon. I'm so pleased everything is going so well this afternoon. And you know, we're, everybody's able to hear each other and enjoy this, uh, this great convention. But all the virtual attendees, we love that you're there virtually, but we sure wish you were here in person with us. But you know, everybody's got that to go.